Welcome to episode 25 of Mike's Notes. Today, five lessons from former Coca-Cola CEO Neville Isdell. and chairman of Coca-Cola from 2004 to 2008, and this was after he had a long career with the company. He served under the very popular CEO, Roberto Goizeta, and that's actually whose book I thought I was going to get. I didn't know what Goizeta's name was, I just knew that there was a CEO who had really grown Coca-Cola, and when I saw Estelle's book, The Inside Story of Coca-Cola. I thought that was him. It wasn't, but this book turned out to be a pleasant surprise too because Estelle had his own set of experiences where there were a lot of lessons to draw from. He worked in South Africa as apartheid was coming to an end. He worked in the Philippines when Pepsi had a two-to-one advantage over Coke. He worked in Saudi Arabia after Coca-Cola had been exiled because the support that they showed for Israel by selling products there. And I chose to read this book and continue reading this book after the first few pages because I didn't know about Istel. And sometimes we fall into this availability bias with our news where we see the same people in podcasts, we hear the same stories from the news, the same types of biographies tend to top the shelves. And sometimes if we get off the beaten path, we can learn a few things as well. And that's what this book provided for me. As Haruki Murakami wrote, if you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. And we've tried to avoid that a little bit in this podcast. Even though episodes like 24 are about someone like Warren Buffett, I think that the way I presented some of those different ideas were in a new way. Episode 19 was about Phil Knight and Peter Thiel two of the biggest CEOs of the 20th century, but I think in overlaying their ideas, maybe you got a little bit more out of that than just what the traditional report on some of these guys are. So today we're going to jump into five things that I learned from Neville Istel in his book, Inside Coca-Cola. Ready? One. Istel's book begins on the island of Barbados. He had retired from working for Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola subsidiaries, and he writes this, quote, I was 60 years old and financially secure. I had lost 10 pounds in retirement and was physically fit and finally finding time to spend with my family after decades of moving all over the world and working countless 15-hour days, end quote. And as Istel is enjoying his time in Barbados with his family, He's asked to rejoin the Coca-Cola company as CEO, and this is how he phrases his thought process about that question. Quote, but could I live with myself if I turned down the ultimate challenge? End quote. And note that Estelle went back to work. He traded sunny mornings on the beach in Barbados and golf and family time for the ultimate challenge. And a lot of people talk about this more than money, that they look for more than the money of a situation. Thanks to stock options and world travel, Estelle had all the money he needed. And in those travels, he scooped up different pieces of property in France, 
South Africa and Barbados at depressed prices, he was able to leverage his Coke shares, which had vested, and that he had the option to purchase, along with very astute real estate timing to make some incredibly smart investments. And he had homes in all those places. And he had grandkids, but he still ended up going back to work. Earlier in his career, he saw this same effect, this more-than-money effect. In a negotiation with German bottlers in 1987, he recalled, quote, For many of the bottlers, higher profits did not trump the loss of control over their companies. Some of the bottlers were already so wealthy, a little more money was not that tempting, particularly if it meant losing the prestige of owning a Coca-Cola bottling franchise, end quote. So Estel saw that even though he could make these bottlers a lot of money, there was something else. There was more than money that these bottlers wanted. Money, though, is such an easy scoreboard that we often use it, but it's not the best one. Billionaire Seymour Schulich wrote, quote, The word billionaire is a very crude and inaccurate measure of how well I have played the game of life, end quote. Remember, people never want money. It, it's the things that money allows that people want. Sometimes you can skip the money part entirely. Just like in the board game Monopoly, where you can advance to a space and pass go and collect $200, you can get to different places, different things in life, different experiences without money. Podcasters like Tim Ferriss, James Altucher, and Brian Koppelman have all mentioned that part of the reason they started their podcast was as an excuse to talk to people. If you have a top podcast, people will come and talk to you. The best example of this was when James Altucher talked to Maria Popova, who runs the site Brain Pickings, and he comes out and says, thanks for coming on. I know you don't have anything to promote, but I just wanted to talk to you about this. An early animator that worked with Walt Disney named Walt Kimball said this about Disney's success, quote, if you want to know the real secret of Walt's success, it's that he never tried to make money. He was always trying to make something that he could have fun with or be proud of, end quote. Money is nothing more than fuel. Video maker Nicholas Megalus compares it to gasoline. Phil Knight compared it to blood pumping throughout the body. He said that the point of Nike was never to create something like the brand, but it was to enable people to do the things that would let them live to their best potential. In Robert Curson's book, Shadow Divers, about these guys that dive deep into the ocean to look for treasure and other sunken ships, he said that those divers are just using the money that they get from each dive to fund the next dive. Money is the thing that gets them to the next part. It's the thing that gets you to what you really want. It's the means, it's the road, it's the blood, it's the gasoline. When Isdell was offered a chance to go back to Coca-Cola after retiring from there, he didn't need money. Coke, however, offered something worth even more. It offered authority and power and influence and the ability to change the world. It was a chance for Isdell to get things he wanted but that money couldn't buy. Two, you have to be there, wherever there is, to succeed. Working for the bottling side of Coca-Cola meant that Isdell had to travel a lot. He had to visit bottling plants in certain geographic areas, and as he worked his way up the chain of command, he would be assigned a larger geographic area that he had to travel. 
and he had to go around to make sure that the Coca-Cola branding was well taken care of, that the trucks were painted, that the bottling facilities were clean. He had to be there. He wrote about one particular night when he went route riding in an all-black township in South Africa, quote, observing what was happening in the marketplace while a salesman went about his normal sales job, end quote. Estelle and the man finished the route, and as they left the township, a security agent came up to them and asked what he was doing. At the time, it was against the law for a white man to be in a black township after dark because there were different curfew regulations. Estelle explained why he had been there, and the agent released them. It was only once he got home and he turned on the TV that he saw there had been riots all over this township and that he had barely escaped being caught up in the uprising against apartheid in South Africa. But wherever he went, he had to go and he had to visit places. When he was supervising the German territory, he traveled through Checkpoint Charlie to go to East Germany to look for places where Coke could set up a bottling information. He drove all around dangerous roads in the Philippines and traversed different parts of Australia and saw the different people who lived there. The story that got me most thinking about being there was the story of Samuel Zamuri, which is told in Rich Cohen's book, The Fish That Ate the Whale. Zamuri was an immigrant in New Orleans who basically had nothing. He was able to round up a cart and got ripe bananas for free from the boats that were bringing them from Central Americas. These were bananas that the stores didn't want to buy from the banana plantations. And so rather than throwing them away, they gave them to Zamuri. And these were known as fruit jobbers, the guys that just had a cart and would peddle bruised and overly ripe fruit around and try to sell it in the area. And eventually Zamuri was able to sell it throughout New Orleans. And then he was able to uh, work his way up a railroad line and sell it along the railroads. And then he was able to buy a boat and then he was able to buy a plantation. And Zamuri really worked his way up in the industry in a stair-step method by doing one thing at a time. And one thing that is true, that is present throughout his story, is that he was always there. He was always at the place that he had to be. This is what Cohen writes about Zamuri from the book. Quote, Zamuri worked in the fields beside his engineers, planters, and machete men. He was deep in the muck, sweat covered, swinging a blade. He helped map the plantations, plant the rhizomes, clear the weeds, lay the track. He was a proficient snake killer. Taller than most of his workers, as strong and thin as a railroad spike, he shouted orders in dog Spanish. He believed in the transcendent power of physical labor, that a man can free his soul only by exhausting his body. A life in an office, desk-bound, was for the feeble and weak who cut themselves off from the actual. He ate outside shark's fin soup, plantains, crab gumbo, sour wine. His years in the jungle gave him experience rare in the trade. Unlike most of his competitors, he understood every part of the business, from the executive suite where the stock was manipulated to the ripening room where the green fruit turned yellow. He was contemptuous of banana men who spent their lives in the north, far from the plantations. Those smuck schmucks, what do they know? They're there. We're here. It's really important to be there when being there is really important. And that was true for Zamuri and that was true for Istel with Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was often the dominant soft drink and 
countries all around the world mostly because they were there, that they had the ability to get a foothold and to hold that foothold. When they would leave, they would often lose their market share and they would have a lot of trouble recovering there. Being there allows an idea from Charlie Munger to come into play and it's what Munger calls surfing. Here's what Munger said about it. Quote, then there's another model from microeconomics which I find very interesting. When technology moves as fast as it does in a civilization like ours, you get a phenomenon which I call competitive destruction. You know, you have the finest buggy whip factory and all of a sudden in comes this little horseless carriage and before too many years go by, your buggy whip business is dead. You either get into a different business or you're dead. You get destroyed. It happens again and again and again. And when these new businesses come in, there are huge advantages for the early birds. And when you're an early bird, there's a model that I call surfing. When a surfer gets up and catches the wave and just stays there, he can go a long, long time. But if he gets off the wave, he becomes mired in the shallows, end quote. Munger's idea here of surfing, of staying in the barrel of the wave, is almost exactly what happens to Coca-Cola in the different countries that it stays in and the different countries that it gets out of. For example, when Coca-Cola left India, the new market share was gobbled up by a company called Thumbs Up. And that company had 85% of the market share as it operated in India. Only when Coca-Cola wanted to get back in were they able to buy the company. Had they not had to buy their way in, they would have had this long uh, market share fight between Thumbs Up and Pepsi-Cola, who had continued to operate in India. Being there, having a foothold, being in the wave, allows other people not to get that spot. You can defend that spot. You can build what Munger and Buffett like to call moats. You can have a competitive advantage. For companies, the goal is to stay in the edge of the wave, to stay in the barrel, to not get off the wave and have to catch another one because you might not end up catching another one. This is what happened when Coke got kicked out of Saudi Arabia in 1968 during the Arab League boycott of companies that were supporting Israel. It also happened when Coke left India. Isdell put it this way in the book, quote, Coca-Cola is the last company to leave if it leaves at all and the first to return, end quote. That's all about being in the wave. That's the idea of staying there so no one else can catch it and so you don't have to catch another one. A technology example of this was the MP3. The MP3 had a first mover advantage and it's odd to think that there was a time when no one had decided on a desired audio format, but there was. There were a lot of technical hurdles between the MP3 one, the MP2 and the MP3, there was AAC, there was all kinds of file extensions and formats for music. There was no technology that succeeded that had this first mover advantage until the MP3 started to be exchanged in peer-to-peer -peer services like Napster. This story is really told in the great book, How Music Got Free, and it showed that once people were able to smuggle CDs out of pressing plants and rip them onto computers. They could spread like wildfire through the network. They would have a network effect and go everywhere and anywhere. This led to the MP3 getting in the barrel of the wave. It led it to have the first mover advantage because once people had this type of format on the computer, it was better for them to have more of the same type of format because it would make sorting the songs easier. 
formatting the songs easier, transporting and storing the songs would all be easier. So the MP3 also had the first mover advantage, just like Coca-Cola when it had a foothold in different countries, and just like Charlie Munger explains in his metaphor about surfing. Three. Isdell is another successful CEO who spoke and wrote about the importance of marriage. He wrote that after getting married, he had to stop at a distribution center and, quote, My new wife waited in the car for two hours while I paid workers, took stock, and counted petty cash, end quote. That's amazing to me to think about. Uh, you're on your way to your honeymoon, and you have to stop and take care of this business. Another story that falls in line with this is one that Walt Disney told. He would suggest to his wife, Lillian, that if they weren't doing anything, they could go for a relaxing drive through the country. Well, these drives would always end up at Disney's studio, and Lillian would often sit down to take a nap. Disney would work, and after a while, he would see that his wife was still sleeping. So he would get up, and he would turn the clock backwards, and then when she woke up, he could point out that, oh no, it wasn't that late. They could stay at the studio a little while longer. Here's why I think good marriage comes up again and again in some of the books I read and podcasts I listen to. And it has to do with how Malcolm Gladwell addressed his 10,000 hours idea, or at least the 10,000 hour idea that Gladwell reported on. Made famous in one of his books, Gladwell was recently on the Freakonomics podcast to explain the nuances of it. And this is what he said, quote, to me, the point of 10,000 hours is, if it takes that long to be good, you can't do it by yourself. If you have to play chess for 10 years in order to be a great chess player, then that means you can't have a job. Or maybe if you have a job, it can't be a job that takes up most of your time. It means you can't come home, do the dishes, mow the lawn, take care of your kids. Someone has to do that stuff for you, right? And I think that's the marriage effect that we see. That's the reason why people point out their marriages and when they have good ones is because it allows them to get their 10,000 hours of experience and expertise in an area without worrying about other things. Four. Have clever red flags. As Istel earned promotions, he did more inspection of bottling facilities than management and running of bottling facilities. And as he did these inspections, he had to come up with clever red flags to see whether the bottlers were always doing something a certain way or if they had just cleaned up and were presenting him the best face, but maybe not the most accurate face of their facility. One way he did that is that he would go to the locker rooms or bathrooms to inspect how clean the facility really was. These weren't areas that a typical facility inspector would check, but Estelle did because he figured that the cleanliness of the locker room would represent the cleanliness of the facility overall when he wasn't there. Stock market short seller Jim Chanos talked about a similar thing. He recalled the time when one of his employees went to a meeting and, quote, I remember that my head of stock loans went to a meeting that Bear Stearns had with its prime broker clients to put them at ease. My partner came back, and he was, of course, less at ease based on that meeting, end quote. So when Chanos' employee went to a meeting where the uh, presenter was saying everything was okay, he realized that was a red flag that everything was not okay. The best red flag story that I've ever seen comes from David Lee Roth and Van Halen. 
Here's what Roth said about their brown M&Ms. Uh, many years ago, it was part of the Van Halen contract as we toured through the arenas in the 80s that there would be no brown M&Ms found in the backstage area or the promoter would forfeit the entire show at full pay. But David Lee Roth explained that wasn't it at all. Van Halen wasn't being divas or they weren't being just outlandish. They were all those things, but that wasn't what this particular part of their tour rider was for. Van Halen at the time had the biggest production tour ever, and getting all their gear and lights and sound equipments into buildings, especially older buildings, wasn't easy. Promoters and staff at the buildings weren't incentivized to get the details right. It was a principal-agent problem, where the agent, in this case the promoter and facility manager, were making decisions about the quality of the setup that affected the principal, David Lee Roth and the other members of Van Halen. So Roth and the other members had to figure out a way to ensure that all of this latest and greatest lighting and sound equipment was set up safely so that they could perform without something happening to them. Their writer, Roth says, was as thick as a Chinese phone book. And, and then just out of the middle of nowhere said there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area or the promoter will forfeit the show at full price. What was the point? If I came backstage, having been one of the architects of this lighting and staging design, and I saw brown M&Ms on the catering table, then guaranteed the promoter had not read the contract writer, and we had to do a serious line check, because frequently we had danger issues or accidental issues, it's only recently. So sometimes you have to be creative with what the red flags for a situation are. That's not to be confused with having a red team. Five. Isdell is the protagonist in his book, but like any good story, he needs an antagonist. And Pepsi fills that role. Even though he had been with the company for 40 or 50 years and he had many different jobs, his job basically at Coca-Cola was twofold. One, get bottlers to run more efficiently, and two, get market share back from Pepsi. Estelle did a little marketing in between those two things, but those were the main things he did. And to fill that second point, to get market share back from Pepsi, he had to think like Pepsi. So he did some red teaming. Red teaming is when you assume the role of an adversary and try to think like they do. Try to walk in their shoes and to strategize. Because when you know what someone else is going to do or planning to do, you can act accordingly. Estelle did this. One time he rented a conference room. He hung Pepsi posters on the wall. He bought Pepsi shirts to wear. And he served Pepsi Cola as his team sat down and tried to think like Pepsi did and try to figure out what Coke could not do that would help Pepsi the most. Istel wrote this about it, quote, It takes about an hour for people to get comfortable, but eventually things fall into place and workers get a thoroughly honest assessment of their flaws and strengths, end quote. Eventually it worked. Everywhere that Istel ended up, Coke ended up taking market share back from Pepsi, and part of the reason he succeeded in this is running a red team. This idea originated, I believe, in warfare, where you try to plan like the enemy plans. Military historian B.H. Littlehart wrote this in his book, Strategy. Quote, 
It is wise in war not to underrate your opponents. It is equally important to understand his methods and how his mind works. Such understanding is the necessary foundation of a successful effort to foresee and forestall his moves. The peaceful powers, that is, he's talking about uh, World War II, pre-World War II ideas. The peaceful powers suffered a lot from missing the bus through their slowness to gauge what Hitler would next attempt. A nation might profit a lot if the advisory organs of government, including an enemy department, covering all spheres of war and studying the problems of the war from the enemy's point of view so that in this state of detachment it might succeed in predicting what he was likely to do next, end quote. Note what Hart is saying here, that you need a separate department that acts detached that predicts what someone else will do. On the same page, Hart continues, quote, Nothing may seem more strange to the future historian than the way the governments of the democracies failed to anticipate the course which Hitler would pursue. For never has a man of such immense ambition so clearly disclosed beforehand both the general process and particular methods by which he was seeking to fulfill it. Mein Kampf, together with his speeches and other utterances, provided abundant clues to his direction and sequence of action. If this amazingly clear self Revelation of how his mind worked is the best evidence that what he achieved was not a matter of accident nor a mere opportunism. It is also the clearest confirmation of the proverbial saying, what fools men are, end quote. So Hart is pointing out here that had the United Powers, had the Democratic Powers tried to anticipate Hitler, they would have succeeded because he was giving plenty of signals of what he was up to. This wasn't unique just to the European sphere of war. In the Pacific, the United States in particular made similar mistakes, even though they tried not to. Beginning in 1923, the United States Navy started what would be 21 large-scale naval exercises as a form of red teaming. Fleet Problem 1, according to Wikipedia, was held in February and March 1923 and was staged off the coast of Panama. The attacking black force, using battleships to represent aircraft carriers, tested the defenses of the Panama Canal. A single plane launched from Oklahoma, representing a carrier air group, dropped 10 miniature bombs and theoretically destroyed the spillway of a Gatton Dam. End quote. So this red teaming idea is where two different forces square off, and the United States Navy did a bunch of these. They had many different fleet problems. The most famous of these in... Uh, hindsight or in history, would be Fleet Problem 13, where forces had attacked and taken a U.S. Navy base in Hawaii. And after the fact, the umpires and the different commanders reviewed the situation and talked about what went well and what didn't go well. And in this, they were a little too conservative about what red teaming really could allow. This is from the book To Train the Fleet for War. Quote, Naval aviators in general, including Rear Admiral Yarnell, were critical of the stinginess in which umpires awarded damages following the February 7th airstrikes across Oahu, noting that they believed the raid would have devastated Army air assets. There was probably more than a little truth to this assertion, given what would actually occur just over nine years later. The umpiring of those attacks was done by army officers who were perhaps embarrassed by the degree of surprise the naval aviators had attained. Some army officers reportedly complained about the legality of attacking on a Sunday morning, end quote. 
Good red teaming means wearing Pepsi shirts and drinking Pepsi Cola even when you work for Coca-Cola. It means recognizing anything that does happen as something that can happen. This isn't always easy because as the army officials noted and as the naval officials noted, when egos and career get in the way, you don't get good red teaming because you don't get a true view of what might have actually happened. Venture capitalist Mark Andreessen addressed this when he talked to Tim Ferriss about how his company, A16Z, makes their investments. And he said that any LP in the company can make a deal without a vote. However, however, you don't get to just go do that yourself completely on your own without stress testing your own thinking. And so it's the responsibility of everybody else in the room to stress test the thinking. And if necessary, we actually create a, we create a red team, right? We'll actually formally create sort of the countervailing force and we'll, we'll designate some set of people uh, to counter argue the other side. The way that we try to, you know, and this is fraught with like, there's all kinds of ways this can go wrong. Cause like, what if I bring in a deal or what if Ben brings in a deal or what, you know, versus the new person bringing a deal or whatever. Um, and so what Ben and I try to do is we, 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 we do this to each other. Right. And so whenever he brings in a deal, like I just beat the shit out of it. Right. Just like, and I may think it's the best idea I've ever heard of. And I'll just like trash the crap out of it. Right. And try to get everybody else to pile on. Andreessen tries to trash the crap out of it and pile on. And the reason he does this is because you need a boss on each side. You need someone from authority uh, pushing back or you get what happened with the Navy and the army when they wouldn't award damages. Whether he knew it or not, Istel had a boss that did this too. When he wanted to expand into East Germany after the wall fell, he thought that the best uh, option for that was for Coca-Cola to build a bottling plant and to run it itself. But his boss said, no, sell it to the West Germans. Don't invest. We don't want to be there with a government that might be unstable, with all these different questions in the air. We will get supplies from them and we will have a bottler there, but we don't want to invest. But Estelle thought it was the right idea, so he kept arguing for it. And he realized uh, that he, his boss was taking the other side because he wanted to, quote, ensure I was committed, end quote. So he needed someone to push back, to stress test, to beat the shit out of his decision, to see if he was really into it. Red teams and red teaming don't need to be a production, or they don't even need to be a meeting, really. In his memoir, Shoe Dog, Phil Knight wrote about uh, how they did red team meetings, and that was really uh, role-playing when they would go to pitch somebody like a shoe manufacturer or the government or any number of other people where they thought those people might raise the objections. They would role-play that. Uh, Knight writes, quote, like two actors running lines, we went through every possible argument someone might throw at us, end quote. So they were red teaming even what a meeting would be and trying to come up with what the enemy or the adversary or the opponent would do so that they had a way to counteract that. Red teaming is a child of the idea of inversion, and that's to think of things backwards as well as forwards. A simple example of that is how do you get your car to last as long as possible? Well, there are things you can do like change the oil, drive conservatively, stay out of accidents, keep your hands on the wheel, uh, don't be distracted, don't drink and drive. Inversion asks, what are the things that would destroy your car as fast as possible? So it's flipping the question around, and then you come up with things that uh, would destroy the car. So it would be to drive fast, to do engage in risky driving, to text and drive, to do all kinds of those things, and then you know to avoid those things. So you flip the question around and ask, how do I 
not do the thing I want to do. And then you can learn to avoid those things. And this is important for Coca-Cola too. Monish Pabrai thought about this and asked, what would you do that hurt the brand? And his answer was, if you allowed a competitor to operate with the name Cola in any area, then that would hurt the brand because it would uh, dilute all the equity, all the brand recognition that Coca-Cola had spent so much time to build up. And that was something that Estelle said they did. They really enforced the Cola trademark wherever they could. Those are five things I learned from Neville Estelle's book, Inside Coca-Cola. One, a lot of things are more than money. Money is just the means to get there. Two, you have to be there. You have to see what's happening to really understand. Three, marrying right helps you get your 10,000 hours. Four, clever red flags work really well. And five, build a red team to push back on all the decisions you make. Thanks for listening to episode 25 of Mike's Notes. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you.